right, everyone, let's take our seats. And you can uh, turn your Bibles on or turn them to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, second chapter in your Bible. One day we will leave these early chapters of Genesis, but not quite yet. There's more there. There's a lot more there, actually. Lord, if you're able, please stand and listen to the word as it's read. This morning's reading is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we never know what our faithfulness to our vocations might accomplish. In Oz Guinness's book, The Call, he tells the story of Jane D'Astaire. And I'm sure that's not how you say her last name, but I'll say it that way, Jane D'Astaire. So she was a young mother of two. And her husband was actually recently killed in a duel in England. So the year is 1815. It wasn't just a couple years ago. Uh, 1815. So she was beautiful, talented, smart. But she was filled with despair at her current life situation, and she saw no hope in her future. And so she stood on the banks of a river and was just about to throw herself in to drown herself. But then she looked up. And there in front of her was a young plowman about her age who was plowing his fields. And this is how Os Guinness describes that moment. So meticulous, absorbed, skilled, he displayed such a pride in his work that the newly turned furrows looked as finely executed as the paint strokes of an artist's canvas. And somehow that moment arrested her and she changed her mind. She decided not to give her life up. The man's faithfulness to his vocation changed her life in some massive ways, as we'll see later. Our vocations matter. How we do our jobs matter. But how we think of vocation matters a lot. Sometimes we think of vocation as simply our job, and we'll see that that's that's too small of a way to think of it. What we do and why we do it matters. Now, our series is is from Genesis, and it's called Right from the Start. And we mean that in two ways. Things were right from the start. They went horribly wrong in chapter 3, but in the first two chapters, things were right. And the way that they were right still speaks. There's a lot of meaning in what was right in in these first two chapters of Genesis, and we want to learn from them. We'll learn more today. And then right from the start, there are foundational truths that are part of what it is to be a person, what it is in this creation as well that we need to understand as we read our Bibles. We we can't just uh, race over the first chapters of Genesis thinking, well, if we don't don't understand those, it's fine. The rest of the Bible will still make sense. 
But actually, there's, some, there's, some, there's a truth in that if you don't understand the first few chapters of the Bible, actually, the rest of it really doesn't make sense. There's no cross of Christ if there's no fall of man, and the fall comes in chapter 3. So these truths are foundational. Now, today, we're going to think about this idea of vocation, as I said. And our, our vocations are blessings from God. Our vocations are blessings from God. That's the, the banner idea we want to come away with. Our, our vocations, plural, everyone here has more than one vocation. That might be a shock to you, but you do. You have more than one vocation. Our vocations, plural, are blessings from God. Number one is going to be the context of Genesis 1 and 2. So it's kind of, a, uh, in some ways, we're setting the context and in such a, uh, a lengthy way that it gets its own point today. So the context of Genesis 1 and 2. And then number two, our vocations are callings by God. And then number three, our vocation of the cultural mandate. And then number four, our vocations as men and women. So number one, we'll set the context of Genesis 1 and 2. Then number two, our vocations as callings by God. Number three, our vocation of the cultural mandate. And then our vocations as men and women. Let's pray. Father, we we desire today to be affected by your word so that we would live lives consecrated to you. We want to understand what you are asking of us as your people. You set us apart. Help us understand what we are set apart for. If we're homemakers, help us to understand what it means to be set apart as a homemaker. If we're those in that season Benjamin talked about as students, where we're trying to discern your will for us for the future, help us to know your will clearly. And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning in these next minutes that we have. We pray, Lord, that Genesis would speak powerfully to our souls. Affect us, Lord, where we are thinking wrongly and inspire us where we are thinking rightly and need to continue that. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point one is setting some context here. So we read from Genesis 2 because we're turning from Genesis 1 to 2, although I'm going to go back to Genesis 1 in just just a minute, but we are basically turning toward Genesis 2. We're in a new part of the book, and one of the, the clues that we're in a new part of the book is verse 4, the way that it opens. It says, these are the generations of, these are the generations of. And if you are about to read the book of Genesis, or you have been reading the book of Genesis recently, then you might have noticed that phrase pops up a lot, 10 times actually. And that's kind of the section breaker, the section divider for this book. So... It wasn't originally printed with a big number two right there at Genesis chapter two and a big number three there at Genesis chapter three. But as Moses wrote the book, he put in these clues that I'm in a new section now. I'm leaving that section behind. I'm in a new section now. And the clue is that that phrase, these are the generations of. And so it'll come up when he says, these are the generations of Adam in chapter five. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. These are the generations of Shem, who's uh, the in some ways, the, the uh, favored son of Noah. These are the generations of Terah, which is actually where we read about Abraham. These are the generations of Ishmael, the son of Abraham. These are the generations of Isaac. And these names are, of course, familiar to you, right? Because these are the key figures in Genesis. These are the generations of Esau. And then the last one is these are the generations of Jacob. And Jacob's section starts at 37 verse 2 and extends all the way to chapter 50. 
Now, we're in the first of the these are the generations of sections. Which means that Genesis 1, through the first three verses of Genesis, is kind of its own thing. It's a, it's a prologue for the whole book. Moses is really setting up the key figures. You know, it's an introduction that lets us know, okay, who, who are the key players here and what do I need to know about them to make sense of the story that you're about to tell me? Well, one player is God. God created everything. We need to know that. And then in chapter 1, man is placed in the context of the cosmos in this whole dramatic event, series of events, this week of miracles that we read about in 1, and 1, through, 1, 1 through 2, 3, man is established there in, in, the, in the largest context possible, right? But now, he's, now Moses is going to focus though in a much more narrow way, and he's going to begin to tell a story at 2, 4 that doesn't stop. So if, if, if 1, 1 kind of stopped at 2, 3, because it's a self-contained prologue, well, 2-4 is going to start, and it's not going to stop all the way through chapter 50. In fact, after chapter 50, you get to the book of Exodus. The story rolls on. In fact, that, that story that starts at 2-4 doesn't really stop until you get to Revelation, the last chapter in, the, in your Bible. All right, and then you get to 2-5, and if you read it quickly, then you get nervous. If you read it quickly, you think, oh, wait a minute. There's no bush of the field, and there's no small plant of the field. That means somehow... The vegetation that we were told about in the early in the in the six days of creation is somehow gone. It's evaporated, and I'm in, in some new type of situation. And you might even think this is contradictory to chapter one. But if we do that, we're just reading too quickly. You have to just slow down at a verse like this. So verse five says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the, on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now that word field has to do with like a farmer's field, a cultivated field, a, a contained place. And so later on in the book, in Genesis 47:20, the Egyptian farmers are going to sell their fields to Pharaoh because of the famine. That's how they're going to survive. They're going to give their land, sell their fields to Pharaoh to survive. And so it's that kind of field that is being talked about here. And the farmer in this field is Adam. He's, introduced, he's going to be introduced to us in just a couple verses. That's the farmer of this field. There's no field because the farmer hasn't been formed yet. He's formed in verse 7, 2 verse 7. And once he's formed, he's placed in the Garden of Eden and then begins his life as the farmer gardener. And so that's when the fields are cultivated, that's when the fields will be harvested. Well, that's when you have a bush of the field and you have small plants of the field, when you have a gardener to do his gardening and a farmer to do his, his farming. And so what you have in chapter 2 is not, not what's happening in the whole earth. It's not the global picture. It's the narrow view. It's what's happening in this one small place called Eden, and it's actually not in the entire land of Eden. It's in a small part of Eden, the Garden of Eden. And, and of course, we don't know where it is, but it's, it's somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere. Uh, we can tell by the rivers that are named uh, later in the chapter. It's somewhere in that vicinity. It doesn't look today like it did then. We know that. And we can't go there because of those, uh, that cherubim with the flaming sword. But it's in that general, that general region. 
Now, what, what we learn about Eden is that in verse 8, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, is going to plant a garden there. And this is a cultivated, contained place somehow. And so in our, in our Google map, we, we spent chapter 1 looking at the, the zoomed out. I mean, you can't get any more zoomed out than chapter 1 uh, of, of Genesis. Because not only do you see the whole earth, but you see the sun, moon, and stars in the distance. And so that, the Google Earth view of chapter 1 begin, gets very, very, very narrow. We see the blades of grass in chapter 2. We see the, the, the vicinity of, of Eden, this garden in Eden in chapter 2. So we're zooming in significantly. God's going to make the gardener, and then he's going to make the garden, and he's going to place that gardener in the garden in chapter 2. That's Adam's special responsibility, the person Adam. Uh, not the couple, but the, but the person Adam. His special responsibility is to work that garden and keep or protect that garden. And as, he makes, and as God makes that gardener, he's going to make a, help, a helper fit for the gardener. And of course, she's Eve. Now, one clue that we're in uh, a different story with, with a different emphasis. It's not contradictory. It's just a different emphasis. One clue is actually the name of God that's used. In chapter 1, the name of God used is, it's, it's translated as simply God. In Hebrew, it's Elohim. And in almost every single verse of chapter 1, Elohim is mentioned. God. Who did this? God. God is the sovereign creator. And so Elohim has that connotation. God, the sovereign creator. But when you get to chapter 2, the phrase is Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. And, it's, and that phrase is used 19 times in chapter 2 and 3. So we know that something's shifting. There's a focus that's shifting. Now, Lord God has this connotation of, yes, God, Elohim, the sovereign creator, but also Yahweh, the special covenant name that God uh, attaches to himself in covenant with Israel. And so God is calling, it, calling attention to his personal covenantal relationship with his people by referring to himself as Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And what's fascinating is, is Lord God is used, Yahweh Elohim is used 19 times in chapters 2 and 3, and then it's not used again in the rest of Genesis, not until Exodus chapter 9 is that phrase used again. It's just a fascinating little, again, there, there weren't highlighters back then, but they had things like this, literary devices like this to tell you, don't miss this, this is significant. Andres Kossemer and Gregory Goswell uh, in their biblical theology say this. This will be the last thing I say about context, then we'll move on to vocation. They say, if Genesis 1 focuses on God and his majestic sovereignty, in Genesis 2, the intimacy of God's care comes to the fore. For the Lord God fashioned, our translation, the man, and planted a garden. The biblical presentation would be impoverished without portraits of both without portraits of God as both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent in chapter 1, imminent in chapter 2, close, near, intimately involved. So that's setting the stage for Genesis 2. Now back to vocation. Our vocations as callings by God. A lot of times we think of that word vocation as synonymous with occupation. And so if I ask you, what's your vocation? You're probably going to 
tell me the thing you do for money a lot, of, a lot of the hours of the week, and if you actually don't have a job that occupies you for many hours a week that pays you, you might stumble. You, may, you actually might not really have an answer for me if I ask you your vocation. But I think it's helpful to broaden that. Your, your, your occupation actually is your vocation, but it's only one of your vocations, and that's the thing. A vocation is a calling. There's an aspect here of calling. The Latin vocare is where we get vocation, and that vocare means to call. And so even though we don't tend to associate a vocation with a calling, it's helpful if we don't lose that connection. It's it's a significant connection, especially as God's people. We want to keep that connection. We want to preserve that, that connection. And so in this sense of calling, we're going to get to the practical uh, calling that you may or may not have in a second. But if, it, but if it has to do with a calling that God has given you, then we want to think first about you being called by God. You being called by God to himself. That's, that's the calling that dominates all of the other callings that you have. In Acts 2.39, when uh, Peter is uh, preaching the Pentecost sermon, he says the promise of Christ and the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There's a lot of ways to describe God's people. But one of the ways is that they are the people that God has called to himself. He set them apart from all other people, called them to himself and said, you are mine, you belong to me. And that's why in I mean, we could have picked so many other passages, but one, one passage which, which captures one of the implications of this is 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Paul's talking to Timothy, and he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And he means soldier in a particular way. He goes on to say, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now, he's ta- now, this is Paul the Apostle, the Pharisee-turned-Apostle, talking to Timothy. Neither one of them are military soldiers. The one who enlisted him, the one who enlisted them, is, is God himself. He's enlisted them to become his soldiers for his purposes. And that's true of all God's people. They are all enlisted by the Lord. They've been called into service by the Lord. And like any good soldier, that means that our, our overriding, our overarching concern is how to please the one who enlisted us. So before we get to any sense of what we're called to, we do want to think about that, about the who we're called, called to. We're called to a person, and we're called to please that person first and foremost, above everything else. Os Guinness, in his book, The Call, says... Calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is invested with a special devotion, dynamism, and direction lived out as a response to his summons and service. Calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, and that's, there's no hyperbole here. Words like everything mean everything. Everything we are, everything we do, and 
Everything we have is invested with a special devotion, dynamism, and direction lived out as a response to his summons and service. But it doesn't take long. When you, when you recognize that you're called to the Lord, it doesn't take, take long to realize that has a lot of implications for my life. And so in some ways, that, that one calling coming into my life is like, a, is like sunlight passing through a prism. And when sunlight passes through a prism, you know, it explodes into all these different colors. And so that one call coming into your life explodes into all these different callings. And we're not going to cover all of them today. But just so you know what we're talking about here. You are called, before you're called to anything else, your first vocation is as a Christian who serves the Lord, a Christian who serves the living God. But being a Christian means you're also in Christ's church. And so right behind that, you are a churchman, a churchwoman. You are called to the church, to serve the church. And the day that you say marriage vows to someone else, you are instantly called to be a spouse. Your husband or your wife. And the day that the Lord brings a biological child or an adopted child into your life, you know that you're called as a, as a father or a mother. You being here today, alive today, means you're called as a son or a daughter. That's a calling with obligations to honor your parents. And yes, you might actually have a job that you do for money, which is also a calling that you have. Or sometimes you have callings that are not, not always paid, uh, paid callings, paid vocations. So Mike is called, Mike Noel is called as an elder. So he, he gets a stipend. Um, we do honor him in that way. But it, it's not his job. And yet it's a calling. It's very much a calling for Mike. You know, for John and me, it's, it's a job and a calling. You're a citizen of the United States or another country. That's a, that's a calling. You providentially, you know, you didn't choose it. It just happened to you. Or maybe you did choose it. Maybe, maybe U.S. citizenship is not your, not your first citizenship. That's a, that's a calling. It has certain obligations attached to it. You're called to a lot of different things. Your calling might be a temporary one. Uh, for a period of time, I, I, I served on the board uh, for my son's basketball team. So for two, a couple years, I think maybe even I was president one of those years. I've, it's fuzzy now. But uh, I was on the board of uh, his basketball team. It was a temporary calling. I am no longer on, the, on that board. You are called to many things. That is the calling of God exploding into your life into all these different directions with all these different implications. Martin Luther uh, speaks to this issue, and he says, you know, to that question, are you called? But you, you may reply, but how, if I am not called, what shall I do then? What shall I do then to serve the Lord? But how, if I'm not called, what shall I do then? Answer, how is it possible that you are not called? You have always been in some state or station. You have always been a husband or wife or boy or girl or servant. Picture before you the humblest estate. Are you a husband and you think you have not enough to do in that sphere to govern your wife, children, domestics, and property so that all may be obedient to God and you do, not, and you do no one any harm? Yea, if you had five heads and ten hands, even then you would be too weak for your task so that you would never dare to think of making a pilgrimage or doing any kind of quote-unquote saintly work. 
See, as now, no one is without some commission and calling, so no one is without some kind of work if he desires to do what is right. Everyone, therefore, is to take heed to continue in his calling, look to himself, faithfully do what is commanded him, and serve God and keep his commandments. Then he will have so much to do that all time will be too short, all places too cramped, all resources of help too weak. In other words, he's calling us, because God is calling us, to appreciate and elevate all those different things we're called to. We don't need more callings than we have. God may give us more callings than we have. We don't need more callings than we have, but we do need to elevate those callings and be faithful to those callings as he's entrusted them to us. All right, so that's point two, our vocations as callings by God. Now we want to think about the cultural mandate, our vocation of the cultural mandate. Now, these many, many callings, in some ways, had a, had a first, there was a first calling uh, behind these, and, that's what we're going to, and this takes us back to Genesis 1. So right after God says that he's going to make man, male and female, in the image of God, he makes them. In his image. And then we read this in chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, blessed the couple, man and woman, Adam and Eve. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the, the creative activity that that. God modeled and displayed in the, in the first uh, six, six and a half days of creation, they are to continue as husband and wife filling the earth uh, and multiplying. And that same kind of dominion that God has over his creation, they are to emulate in a small way. They're his vice regents. They're sometimes called his vice regents. And so they are as vice regents to subdue the earth and have dominion. And so, yes, there is a, a sense, as God, as God allows, and in the normal flow of life, if the Lord brings to you a spouse, then yes, have children. That's part of how we fulfill this mandate, to be fruitful and multiply. There is a, a very tangible uh, physical expression there. It, it means more than that, though, to be uh, fruitful in our lives and not just uh, reproducing. Now, they were faithful to that. At the end of chapter 1, there's exactly two people on earth. By the time you get to the, the end of Genesis, there's a lot more than that. And so you get the, the clan of Jacob, uh, 70 people when they go to Egypt. And that's, of course, just one small sliver of all the nations that are on the earth. And that's this, this uh, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. This is a sweeping idea. It's as global as it sounds. And it also means more than farming. Now, it has an agrarian immediate context. So there's, they're going to they're gonna take care of the Garden of Eden, at least for a period of time, until they're kicked out of it. But then uh, they're going to take care of the Garden of Eden. That's the primary immediate first application. But it, it means something far beyond that. As Anthony Hokema said, it means to develop a God-glorifying culture. So we call it the cultural mandates. Now, to English speakers, that's, that's jarring. 
uh, for a couple reasons. One, how do you get culture out of these words here? Culture, you think society, you think development, you think the complexity of a society with governments and all that. And then there's also kind of an allergic reaction to think I, I somehow, maybe the, the paternalistic uh, reflex, right? Are you saying that my culture is better than everyone else's culture and I need to impose my culture on their culture? So we can get nervous. But you want to think, um, this is another place where the history of words can be useful. So culture and cultivate actually have the same heritage, the same uh, linguistic heritage. They both go back to the word that means cultivate, to tend, to guard, to till. So when you're enculturating something, you're developing it. You're turning it from an unproductive plot of land to a productive plot of land, a place that has, has a, a food, wheat, corn, and beautiful things, ornamental shrubs and things like that. So you're, you're taking something undeveloped and you're developing it. And there is a simple agrarian idea there, but it doesn't stop there. It means music and art and architecture and business and innovation, all those things that were prayed for earlier in our service, technological advances, medicine, all those things are part of this cultural mandate. So I mentioned the, being on the board of the basketball team, and in some ways, you know, in our, our little, you know, we were rewriting bylaws and policies and things like that, so in a small way, we were subduing and have domi- having dominion over this, this little plot of land that we had on this basketball program. Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor. Uh, this is a great book if you want to go uh, deeper in these, the kind of things we're talking about, vocation, callings, uh, this idea of culture mandate. Uh, Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor is Outstanding. So he says that Genesis 1.28 has been called the cultural mandate. It means civilization, not just procreation. We get the sense God does not want merely more individuals of the human species. He also wants the world to be filled with a human society. We are called to rule the rest of creation and even to subdue it. God owns the world, but he has put it under our care to cultivate it. We are to be gardeners. That is the pattern for all work. It is creative and assertive. It is rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. But as Christians, we know that not all cultures are equally helpful. Not all cultures allow people to thrive and flourish. There are cultures and parts of cultures that are diabolical, detrimental, dangerous to our souls. And so this is where the the, uh, cultural mandate connects with the Great Commission. Because what you see in the Great Commission in some ways is, is exporting a certain kind of culture to the world. So in Matthew 28, Jesus closes the Gospel of Matthew with these words, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So it's, now it's not be fruitful and multiply in the context of, of, of a marriage. Now it's go therefore and make disciples, which, which is just another way of saying be fruitful, isn't it, and multiplying. So there's definitely an echo there. And it's not subduing and having dominion over, over fish, but it is baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. There's, so there's a subduing of our sinful selves, a subduing of our rebellious, hating God's selves as we embrace the Lord's teaching in all of our lives. 
So there's a culture that's being exported in that way. So that's the cultural mandate. And then the last, this last point will be short, but our vocations as men and women. One of the things that we see in Genesis 2 and 3 is a unique um, emphasis on Adam the man and Eve the woman, and also as it connects to their vocations. And this is where it gets tricky because there's, there's things that are generally true here that you can find exceptions to. Maybe you, maybe you feel like you're an exception to in certain ways. And that, that sometimes is, is absolutely true. But there's also a, a tendency here. There are tendencies here. There's things that are generally true. There's a, a, a broad sense in which what God is saying here is always true. And so sifting through that can be challenging to us individually. But we, we do want to hear what is said here to us in our vocations distinctly as men versus women, as I said. So the man is made from dust. And then he's placed in the garden, and he's called to work and keep that garden. And there's a basic sense of, of working and keeping. There's a, uh, keeping can be protecting, and working is just like it sounds. You're, you're working the soil, you're working the shrubs, you're working the plants. So he's doing the work of a gardener. And he's uniquely connected to that work. In some way, he's made from dust to work the dust. And then the curse, so when the fall of man happens in chapter 3, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, when the fall happens, his calling is uniquely affected. So as, as Adam the man is cursed, his calling is uniquely affected. And so God says to the man, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In other words, work will be a lot harder than it was supposed to be. There's going to be a lot more thistles and thorns. There's going to be a lot more sweat than it was supposed to have. Your calling is cursed because of your sin. So the way that the man is called to work is unique and distinct. And then we see in a similar kind of way, the woman is called to a distinct kind of work. So she's not made from dust. Adam, who's going to work the ground is made from dust. She's made from the man. And as someone made from the man, she's, she's uniquely called to be the man's helper, a helper fit, perfect assistance, a perfect complement to the man. And then she's later called the mother of all living. Not hyperbole. Eve is the mother of all people. There is no person on earth who can't trace their DNA back to Adam and Eve. And her as a mother of, all, of, of them. And like the man, her calling is uniquely cursed, just like the man's was. And so when God curses her for her sin, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So the way that her relationships, her f familial relationships are cursed reminds us of, what, of her unique calling. So there's a, in a general sense, in a general sense, a man is called to a what, and a woman is called to a who, in a very general sense. Now a man has to, 
love his wife and love all, all that he's connected to, his responsibilities. Uh, he needs to love the people that he's entrusted with. And a woman is always going to have tasks attached to her role, sometimes very complex and high-level tasks. But there is some kind of general sense at which that is true of all of us, that a man is called to work in a special way and a woman is called to people in a special way. And so often, again, not in every single instance, but so often, when, they, when a man and a woman have the same job, maybe in a company that you have two accountants, equally skilled, equally uh, compensated for their work, equally uh, esteemed for their work, but they will often approach the work differently. Again, general statements. The man's tendency, he's, he sees those numbers. He has, a, he has a relationship with those numbers as an accountant that is different, maybe than the wife's relationship or than the, the woman's relationship to those same numbers. So the woman is, might be aware of the relationships in the office in a way that the man just isn't. And that's connected to how they're made by the Lord, connected to their callings. Still called to be accountants, perhaps, in this company, but they have a different relationship to the work of accounting. Our vocations as men and women. So our vocations are a blessing from God. We have many, many vocations. You know, think of that, that prism. You know, the, the, the call, when God called you to himself, that call exploded in a hundred directions. And you have, you have perhaps half a dozen or a dozen callings. And that, that idea is very helpful because uh, there are um, questions like, am I working too much or am I working too little? Those, those are oftentimes very subjective questions and very difficult to answer. But if you think of the other callings that you have, sometimes an answer uh, presents itself. One of the ways you can know you're working too much, work is a, singular, is a single vocation that you have, a single calling that you have, but one way you, you can answer that question, am I working too much, is by looking at how faithful you are to your other callings. You're an amazing worker. Your, your company loves you. And you're a terrible father. You're just very unfaithful as a father, just to speak in generalities here. But that's one way you know, I think I'm working too much. If my company loves me and I am not at all spending enough time with my children, that tells me. I'm working too much. Now, a given day, a given week, a given month, sometimes even a given year, sometimes that just happens. It's an, it's an inevitable consequence. Sometimes there's a sense in which we're trapped in a job we can't get out of temporarily. And so we do have to allow God's providence and God's wisdom to help us uh, and have patience with that. But seeing the array of callings that we have does help us to know, am I living a faithful life or not? You might, you might think you're working too little, but when you think of the whole array of callings that you have, you realize, I, I am not, actually. I have these other responsibilities, which maybe for this season, maybe it's a long season, these require a lot more of me than maybe my coworker has. Those are hard questions. A lot of times it just takes prayer, seeking the Lord, seeking counsel from others. But you have many, you have many vocations. That cultural mandate idea, we want to hear that. We want to hear that as a way to invest and see the significance of what we're doing. There's a, you know, we're, uh, the, the plan is to get to Ecclesiastes uh, this year. And so we're going to see that there's a futility side to our work, which is true. A lot of what I do is just, it's just going to, it's going to burn in the end. It's going to be forgotten. It's going to turn to dust. But at the same time, your work has this 
eternal significance. It goes before you into the new heavens, the new earth. It goes before you uh, into the Lord himself. There's a reward that you will receive for the work that you do. And the cultural mandate, this idea of investing in a way that explodes into the lives of others, that helps us to see that. That I was going to story open with um, some of the details of, the, of where that story continued. So the woman who was saved, remember, she's, she's about to um, uh, throw herself away, sees this farmer in his fields, and she's arrested. She's, she kind of, sanity is instantly restored in God's kindness. Well, she eventually just rebuked herself for her self-pity. And so she went on and became a Christian, actually. And she married Captain John Grattan Guinness, who was actually Os Guinness's great-great-grandfather. And so Guinness uh, reflects on the event with the plowman, and he says that she was saved from suicide and reinvigorated for life by the sight of work well done. By the sight of work well done. Now, it's too much to ask that all of our quiet faithfulness can have that kind of, um, you know, multi-generational impact, but some of it will. Some of our acts of quiet faithfulness will have that effect on other people. So where do we start here? Well, we can start by maybe think of your day job, that thing you actually do for money. Do it well. Let it be work well done. Dorothy Sayers, in her essay, Why Work, she says that work should be thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself. And man, made in God's image, should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well, a thing that is well worth doing. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Well, we want to close by thinking of the great worker. The great worker is not Adam. Adam failed. He was given a task and he failed. The great worker was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was given a task and he did not fail. He was called and commissioned and he did not fail in that task. In fact, he told his disciples that my food, you know, you guys are always, always complaining about food. Where's the food coming from? Where are we going to get our next meal? And Jesus told them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He accomplished God's work. And he alone, of all people, accomplished the work that God gave him to do. He accomplished it perfectly. All of the vocations that he had, he accomplished it perfectly. And ultimately, that work would involve dying on a cross for sinners like us who are so often unfaithful to our many vocations. Sinners who reject, sometimes even just reject a vocation that we might have, a calling from God in pursuit of our own interests. But Christ did not do that. He did not forsake his vocations. He was faithful to the end. And because of that, there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness of sins. Complete forgiveness. That that cleansing that Phil talked about at the prophecy, Mike, that cleansing is available to us because Christ was faithful to the one who sent him, the one who enlisted him to this task. He was faithful, and so therefore, there is forgiveness. But the glory is there's not just forgiveness, which is amazing and wonderful. There's power, 
power available for you to fulfill your vocations. So when Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, you can actually do it because of what Christ did for us. It's cleansing from sin. We praise God for that, but it's also power to obey, power to do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, as those you've set apart, we confess our sins. Lord, we have not been faithful as we should have. We, we've committed all those sins that Lou prayed about in the workplace. And we could add a hundred others, Lord, in our relationships and other vocations that we have where we've sinned, we've fallen down, we haven't, we haven't done what we should have. And we've done what we shouldn't have. But we do at this moment look to Christ and his perfect faithfulness to you. He was the worker who did the work. He accomplished the work that you gave him to do. And because of that, Lord, there's forgiveness for us and we give you praise for that. And we do pray for help. We pray for help, Lord, that we would lay down our lives uh, for the sake of the people and the tasks you've given us to do. There's a lot of work in this life, and we don't want to be bitter about that. Help us, Lord, to embrace it. It's your calling to us. It's good. There's a redemptive quality to work. There's rest in Jesus. There's rest. There's Sabbath rest we want to take on a regular basis. But you have called us to work, Lord. There will be sweat in our brows. There will be thorns and thistles in the fields. But we pray that we will be those who keep our hands to the plow and don't stop cultivating and harvesting and investing, creating. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you in all that, all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.